This episode is sponsored by Squirrel Sisters. Squirrel Sisters is a health and wellness company founded by sisters Gracie and Sophie Tyrrell, who are on a mission to help you treat your health. As we all know, I love my food, but one thing I tend to struggle with is the balance between being healthy and indulging in quote-unquote snacks. I like to keep my sugar consumption reasonably low without restricting myself on tasty treats and that's where Squirrel Sisters come in. They have a range of healthy snacks, bars and nibbles that can be found in stores across the nation including Waitrose, Holland and Barrett, Selfridges and online on Amazon. All their products are 100% natural, vegan, gluten-free and made with the highest quality ingredients and most importantly, do not have any added sugars. It's a win-win for all. My personal favourite is the Cacao Orange Energy Bars, which taste just like a Terry's Chocolate Orange, but without all the bad stuff. Follow the brand on Instagram, at Squirrel Sisters. And now for the episode. Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm Hannah Harley-Young, a photographer by trade and a foodie at heart. Each week, I sit down and chat all things food with well-known foodies, industry insiders, chefs and people who just love their food. Today, I'm joined by the rock and roll child of the jewellery world, Mr. Stephen Webster. Stephen is known for his contemporary fine jewellery brand, established in 1989. Recognised for its powerful, somewhat rebellious and edgy aesthetics, Stephen's jewellery is intricate, eye-catching and daring. His pieces have graced the necklines of some of the most well-known celebrities around the world, such as Madonna, Taylor Swift and Kylie Minogue. He was awarded an MBE in 2013 and his craftsmanship follows very ethical standards, with his materials always being responsibly sourced. Aside from creating bling, he is a bit of a foodie and we have shared many a bond over some of our favourite snacks and jaunts around London, which we will come to later. So it was only natural to get him on the podcast. Stephen, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And I obviously just need to mention that we are recording remotely due to the ongoing COVID pandemic. Let me quickly ask you, what did you have for breakfast today? I had my my lockdown breakfast. It's become that because I'm a creature of habit. And once I start, there's no, well, I think once you've discovered something that you, you think's perfect, there's no point in mucking about, is there? So I, I had a cottage cheese with some fruit compote and uh, blueberries and granola mixed. And I've been having that breakfast for 12 weeks now. Very healthy of you. Is, yeah, well, <laughs> I was lucky that I started with a healthy mix. <laughs> Do you yeah. normally eat breakfast when you're sort of in London and, you know, in your normal day-to-day life? Well, um, my normal day-to-day life is quite nomadic. So if I'm in a hotel where I, I happen to know that they've got a, a top-notch breakfast buffet, then there's no way I'm going to miss that. I'm going to go, God, you know. I and love, eat. I love a hotel buffet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the Asian hotels, are, they set the gold standard, you know. So, I mean, yeah. I haven't tried an Asian one yet. <laughs> I, I've been to a few of the Las Vegas ones, which are pretty intense. Yeah, well, you know, the Las Vegas ones, I can only imagine, actually. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that idea of eating your eating your way around the world in, in a Vegas way. But um, in an Asian one, of course, you're going to get all the things that we wouldn't normally think of as breakfast. 
um, um, or your things that are, you know, uh, Western style. If I'm just in London in my studio and I, you know, I'll get a coffee, but maybe I'll get a bagel, maybe I'll get toast and Marmite, but that'd probably be a once a week thing. So I just want to bring it back to your childhood. You were born in Gravesend in Kent. What was life like growing up? You know, was food of importance to you as a family? Who cooked? What sort of meals were on the table? I think it was, you know, I grew up in a a working class family where my mum, you know, she worked in the home and and, um, uh, she would do the cooking. Um, she She was very conscious of, uh, ingredients. Um, I didn't know at the time. I never thought about that. But you know, I feel in some way she was a little bit ahead of her game of of understanding nutrition and you know the goodness of vegetables and 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 you know what that meant to you know to your diet and growing up and all those things. And and so I was very fortunate that in her very understated way. And I think you know her access to um, you know things that were basic but but you know formed a square meal you know we 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 ate well um and i i so i'm grateful for that really give me an example of the kind of meals that would be on the table if you remember any of them well a personal favorite i don't know if it was her favorite but would have been a a cheese and onion and, and potato pie and um it was like a lucky dip you know because she would make it with pickled onions and it was like, you know, oh, wow. yeah, exactly. It was like, you know, finding that plum or something in a pudding or, you know, or a sixpence or something, you know, the more pickled onions you found, the better. So that was, that was really great. But I think probably more normally we would have a piece of meat that would be really, really small. And I think that was partly because the way it should be, but I think it was more about budget. So if you had a lamb chop, you'd have one lamb chop in it. And I just, so funny now we have so much of abundance of things and you think about one lamb chopper seems so tiny but that was it you know but then we'd have a lot of vegetables and they would be vegetables that were english vegetables because you know in the 60s when i grew up that was what you had you didn't have so much stuff that was out of season or flown in or or shipped in from somewhere else so fortunately you know around kent where i was born there was a lot of produce and i guess you know eating seasonally eating locally which I think we're all kind of trying to do at the moment, which which is nice, and I think a much better and healthier way of eating. And would you say that nowadays you're quite your family is quite foodie? Yeah, I mean this this period um, of lockdown has been has kind of proven everything that I, that I kind of knew. But I don't live with my two grown up daughters. You know, one's at one's at university, and and the other one you know has lived. On her own for years so to have us all together here you know i realized what a foodie family i've got and um you know my youngest daughter is 21 next week so she's still pretty young but she's totally a foodie you know she will really go out of her way to get some ingredients you know she's always kind of you know dad can you take me here because they've got something she'll have looked it up and it will be some ingredient you know and and then and then she's able to plan out in her head and I've noticed that even though my eldest daughter I'd sort of equally say is very interested in food and eats very healthily and, and enjoys her food she's she's different to Nico she's the youngest one who, who has got this ability to just sort of think in her head about a recipe what she needs 
and then know what to get. And she gets that from Asia, my wife, because she does exactly the same. So, so they're all foodies. Yeah. Well, you lucky man. You're going to be looked after very well. <laughs> I just wanted to ask, in your childhood, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, the idea of becoming a jewellery designer, was that even something that within the space that you were growing up in, was that even something that people would talk about becoming? Like, how no. did your parents feel about you you getting into that world? Well, I, I think, you know, I was, I was lucky that, that that was where I found myself because... Despite being sort of okay at school, I mean, I, we were still in the sort of grammar school system, so I'd made it there. And I think my parents just thought, you know, I'll just continue through and get my A-levels. And, and that was, you know, just taken for granted, if you like. But by, by the time I was 15, I, I, I just really felt that I, I didn't want to be at school anymore. And I I don't really have very many fond memories of school. I can't really think of exactly what it, why. It just, it just didn't feel like I was that connected to anything that was going on. And, and so I went to my careers teacher to say, you know, I feel that I'm, I'm sort of a, a creative person, and um, can you help me with some careers advice? And, and, it, and you know, it was probably the worst advice anyone could ever give, especially for someone who was in a position. To, to sort of determine a young person's future, you know, because he started to reel off all these potential apprenticeships at the local dockyard who were a big employer of young boys, more probably than girls in the area at Chatham Dockyard. It was massive. And, and he, you know, so, so I've said, I, I feel I'm creative. So he said, well, there's boiler making, there's fitting, there's welding, and, and none of that sounded creative to me. I mean, I God forbid what, a boiler maker does other than make <laughs> boilers but um so i i just thought that that wasn't good advice and then without telling even my art teacher who i, I wasn't i didn't like either so god's sakes i was like a real misfit <laughs> i just went off to the local art school or i applied i wrote myself and applied for an interview for fashion design because i really liked fashion and and probably at the time I was quite fashionable. I was very aware of of what was going on in London because it, even in Gravesend, you know, we were we were so close to London. Really, it was only like seventeen miles from the the, the centre of London that you you felt the impact. You weren't like remote somewhere and didn't know what was going on. So I I was very aware of that. I thought that that could be interesting, you know. So I went there, but the the person who met me. Um, a character who, yeah, I think it, it took me a moment to, to even work out what, what he was. He was a very, very flamboyant homosexual man. And he, he was in the, in the mold of Quentin Crisp. And um, oh, yeah. those of you who remember Quentin Crisp, that kind of flamboyance, you know, wow. the, the hair with a slightly purpley tinge and, you know, everything about him was like over-exaggerated. And he was super friendly, but... He really scared me, and um, and he kind of showed me into his <laughs> the room, <laughs> uh, the fashion design <laughs> room, and it was full of sewing machines and and girls and scissors. And I thought, oh no, I don't know what I was thinking, but you know this this yeah. does probably not for me. But but whilst I was there uh, on this sort of day, if you like, it was a bit a bit of an open day, really. I I wandered around and found the jewelry workshops, and they they were full of sort of if they were quite grimy. So, there, it, it, you know, it, it felt different. There was tools, there was flames, there was a lot of noise and 
and an activity, massive amount of activity. And, and it was it was mainly uh, boys, but but it was mixed. So there, there was boys and girls in the department. And I, I'd been an all, all boys school, nearly all my sort of more uh, grown up, uh, you know, older childhood. And and so this looked like something that, that just um, I felt I could kind of deal with, if you like. So that was that. And then and then um, I applied and, and I got onto that course. So there was no conversations previously of of jewelry or anything. It was just a question of me feeling the need to um, continue my education in in a more specific place. When you were on this course, because I actually don't know what goes into like doing a jewelry course. What are you sort of specialising in at that time? I mean, obviously you're not. I assume you're not really working with like precious stones and diamonds and whatnot. Is it all sort of like silver smithing and that that sort of stuff? Well, you're right with precious things. I, I mean, if you if you'd have loaded up a bunch of kids from Gravesend and the area with, with a, <laughs> you know, some diamonds and gold. That's a bit of the last you'd ever seen of them. I, think. I was just about to say, you wouldn't see them yeah. again. <laughs> they wouldn't have turned it into anything. They'd just taken it to the pub and sold it. Um, yeah, no, we, you, you were given like faux, you know, material that right. works a bit like gold, but it's not gold. Uh, much to the disappointment, I think, of us all. But, but the course that I took, which was an extraordinarily good course, to set someone into the trade, but it gave you sort of every day was a different day. So, so on Mondays we would do diamond mounting, which is the sort of traditional way of, of making jewelry that would contain, I'll call it precious stones, diamonds, sapphires, rubies, you know, very, very formal traditional jewelry. And then the next day we would do silversmithing, like you said, there's silversmithing, which was, which was more brutal, you know, big scale hammers, stakes, completely different processes um but they all kind of fall under the same sort of you know jewelry category if you like and then then the next day you might be doing um setting so setting is actually putting the the, the jewels into the the mount so all these you know sort of connections and then at the end of of a year you, you've kind of sort of i suppose generally everybody came out and um, fell into either jeweler or silversmith, and and I I loved both, but I really enjoyed this uh, the forming because silversmithing is really about forming. It's about you know bigger shapes and and and, and forms and uh, and the process involved in that. And I so I, ch I said to my teacher, I you know I think I would like to be a silversmith, and he said, well to be honest, you've got you got good skills, meaning I, you know, I was good with my hands. So he said, but I suggest you go into jewellery because silver, silver smithing world is already on the decline. So this was the mid 70s. And, and if you think about the times, you know, families were <laughs> less inclined to have a formal silverware around the table, you know, and, and the purpose of, of all of that, that industry, if you like, needed to find itself again. And it didn't really find itself again for another 30 years so so he was bang on i then you know i took his advice and i i um you you were basically offered an apprenticeship with one of the companies who took on apprentices who were mainly in hatton garden uh, which is the jewelry hub of london or good old in, hatton garden yeah or the or london's west end because uh, there was sort of two camps and you know i suppose okay. you know to be honest as an apprentice there probably wasn't a lot of difference but the prestige around the West End's jewellers was always higher. You know, Hatton Garden supplied the trade 
And then the West End jewellers were always the West End jewellers. You know, they were in Bond Street, they were in Regent Street, and it was a higher level um, of products, intrinsic value, probably. And so would the jewellery be made in the West End or would the jewellery be made in Hatton Garden no, and then brought into the West End? Yeah, no, it, it, there, it's not an absolute defined line, but generally the, the West End jewellers made the jewellery that was sold, you know, either on the premises or within their group. And I think with Hatton Garden, it probably went further afield. So, yes, Hatton Garden would have had people setting diamonds for the West End, but the West End jewellers were making specifically for their market. And do you still have a lot of the pieces that you made in art school? I Well, actually, I have all the silversmithing pieces I made because I gave them all to my mum, uh, well, my mum and dad. And, and then when my mum uh, passed away, my dad sort of gave them back to me. He said, I don't know if you would like these back. And I thought, okay, you know, I mean, they're just sitting in a, on a shelf going black because <laughs> silver, silverware goes yeah, black course. if you don't use it. Yeah. And so I've got every single piece, including oh, a cigarette box, which um, is an interesting cool. thing to ask a 16-year-old to make. Probably very useful at the time. But it's quite funny, actually, because they didn't have king-size cigarettes. They were really short. So a modern-day cigarette is a bit too long oh really <laughs> you'd have to trim it and then and then sadly actually i had all the jewelry as well and and the bits that i took to completion because some some of the things you do are sort of almost like an exercise so instead of making an entire bracelet you might make a section of a bracelet because you, you've only got a certain amount of time and it's more about practicing the the skills and understanding the different processes than finishing every piece of jewelry but i had yeah. about three rings that were finished complete they had fake stones but you wouldn't have known you know they they looked like traditional jewelry and um i was robbed in my studio um maybe 25 years later and um it's quite funny actually because you know we they couldn't get in the safe so so most stuff was was not they didn't interfere, but they were, you know, in the space. And in my drawers, I had this jewellery because it wasn't really valuable, only to me. So they stole all that, which must have been very disappointing oh, no. when they went down the pub to sell it. Um, and on the other hand, I had a few bits of my contemporary jewellery lying around and they didn't touch that. They left it. Oh, my God. I, so they took all the fake stuff. It was like an insult. <laughs> <laughs> Well, clearly they weren't that bloody professional. No, no. So you so you finish art school and I assume you then embark on an apprenticeship and that was in London, wasn't it? Yeah, that was in Hackney Garden. Yeah. And what kind of people were you working with at that time? Well, I, I think the the um it, it was it was very obvious actually, I think from going to art school to going into Hatton Garden's, you know, interior, that there was the, these were quite different worlds. Um, even though the skills being applied and used were the ones I was learning at art school. I think the, you know, don't, you're at art school, so you're mixing with the fashion crowd, the this, you know, it's a, it's a whole different vibe. It's an art school vibe. And then you go into Hatton Garden and it was really industry. And by that time I was a full on 100% punk. And I used to get picked on all the time in Hatton Garden because Hatton Garden was that really kind of conservative, working you know if you stood out i mean there's a place called leather lane which is a street market in hatton garden i know leather I lane remember very well. once there was like a grocer kid he was probably my age and as soon as i entered leather lane because i had to do the shopping for all the other 
jewelers because they'd have to get their lunch. He started throwing fruit at me. I was like, oh my God. And oh then God. swearing. And, and this happened more than once. <laughs> so, so how old were you at this point? I was 16, coming on 17, probably just, just wow. approaching 17, yeah. But um, so so it was a really, really working, you know, like it, 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 there was definitely not creativity written over Hatton Garden. It just felt yeah. like this is the trade. And the trade was tight and it was about skills. And I was happy learning skills, even though it I didn't quite fit in in my sense of my personal sense of what I was and who I was, you know, it was a bit like, you know, God, if you, if you fast forward, it could be a bit like the, you know, being, being gay in a community where you can't be gay or, you know, you just dress differently and it it wasn't accepted. So so it was kind of funny times really, but, but I had a great time. I really, really enjoyed my time in Hatton Garden. Uh, And then, um, I got to a point in my apprenticeship about three years in where I felt that the skills that were being um, required of me at the place I worked, which made handmade chains, um, as beautiful as handmade chains are, I'm wearing one right now, um, nice. they are a bit boring because they are just links that just carry on and it's like a chain gang, it never ends. And so when you get really good at making chains, you're like, all right, enough already. What else out, What else is out there? And And I was a bit lost um as to where i went next but <clears throat> i was aware of a jewelers um in cheapside which is by saint paul's cathedral uh that had very contemporary jewelry in the window i knew nothing more than that and i just knocked on the door and and as it was the the guy with the name over the door his name was john donald who was a as a designer jeweler he answered the door and i and i just said look i'm a i'm an apprentice jeweler i'm looking for a job and he said okay i've got a job and that was it. And and that opened God, up. I love that. I love the organicness of yeah. just knocking on a door and getting a job. You don't get that much these days. <laughs> no, it should be encouraged. Definitely. Yeah, it should. Um, because he had a job and and, um, and then I was, it, it kind of opened up a whole new world of, of what, of possibilities of what jewellery could be because he was part of a group that was really spearheaded by Andrew Greemer, who's the, the most famous uh, designer oh. jeweler of the time. Um, I love Grima's work. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful, become, beautiful. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's something that people look out for in auction, and uh, quite rightly, you know, I mean, it's is amazing, amazing work because it, it de sort of formalized, deconstructed um, what what fine jewelry had been to that point, and and sort of sort of reinvented it. You know, came, it came back saying, you know, it can also be this. And so it, it just looked very, very contemporary. And, and there was lots of experimentation going on and lots of different ways of working gold rather than these traditional ways, which probably hadn't changed since, you know, early Victorian times. Every, everything I was making up until that point was probably designed in early Victorian times. So it hadn't moved in, you know, a hundred odd years. And then there was this new movement of designer jewelers. So I was lucky to have that experience with him. At this time, whilst maybe you were, I don't know, in your spare time, were you starting to design some of your own stuff just to kind of learn what maybe your aesthetic was? Uh, yes and no. I mean, you know, as a as a jeweler of any sorts, you very quickly start being asked, can you do this for me? Can you do that? Because it just feels like 
why not? You know, if you worked in the car industry, they wouldn't say, could you make me a car? But, but if you were in the jewellery industry, I, because presumption is you can make things for people. So I would get lots of requests, but they were very much sort of in the, in the sort of uh, zeitgeist, you know, of the time, which was, you know, for men, uh, quite chunky, you know, sovereign rings, signet rings, your thick gold chains. So even, even, you know, it wasn't about design. It was more about using your skills to make something. And uh, I may have applied something in there that I thought could be interesting, but, but it wasn't design. I think yeah. that, that didn't really come. I, I, I was so happy being able to make whatever I was given. So, you know, going back to my job, you know, because this, this designer jeweler would give me, a, it was almost like an artist's impression, you know, it wasn't a graphic technical drawing, he, he sort of, sort of a whimsical thing. And then you, you've got to kind of go, right, okay, how, how do I go about this? So there was, was quite a lot of analyzing and technique, um, which is quite creative, but not about design. He'd done the design and that was enough for right, me. Right, okay. You then found yourself in Canada, why and where where were you in Canada? I was in um, a place called Banff, Alberta. <laughs> yeah, um, I know Banff. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, we, which is not the first place you'd think of if you're going to, you know, emigrate <laughs> to be a jeweler. No. Um, I mean, it's very, very beautiful, but um, it's in the middle of absolute nowhere. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you know, you're more likely to come across a bear or a moose. Than yeah, literally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it, it was a strange thing, really. I mean, a guy came by, by the time we're talking now, I was, I was sort of a year out of my apprenticeship and I was, I was kind of, I'd set up my own little workshop, which is easy to do if you're a jeweler, because you can work in a cupboard basically. And, and I was doing work, you know, that came along and a lot of it was for the trade. Um, I was pretty good. I was a good craftsman. So, you know, and then someone says, oh, there's this guy. He's, he's looking for um, someone who can do it, do everything. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. I can do everything. I was 21. So, of course, I could. <laughs> and um, I met up with him and and he was I thought he was American because he sounded American, but he was Canadian. And then uh, so that was the first trick. And then and then he offered to fly me to Canada. And it was the first time I've been on a plane. So. Uh, we flew to Calgary, which was, um, it was minus 27. Oh, and um, I, I think my no. auntie Peg had said, You're, it's going to be cold where you are. Why don't I buy you a coat? So I said, okay, I, there's no way I could have ever thought about a coat for minus 27. You know, it was like, no. so anyway, it was freezing cold. Anyway, he, take, he drives me to Banff. I wake up in the morning. I'm in the middle of the mountains. Like you say, it's in the middle of a beauty spot, but there's nothing. I'm like, where the hell are we going to sell jewellery around here? And, um, and he, he, had, he had this kind of interesting little story. It was kind of like a rock shop, you know, and and uh, had really mineral specimens, fossils, and and he had a jeweler, a German guy was a jeweler, and, and he needed another jeweler, and so I, I said yes, you know, I mean, I, I just I felt to say no would have, I didn't know what was going to lie ahead, and so that was more important for me. So I took the job. I ended up in Canada for three years, and there there I had to pull on all my skills and the ones I didn't have, like designing, because he would just give me rocks. And they were rocks and say, there you go. Now it's your bit. By the time I left Banff, 
four of the guys that I'd been at art school with worked for me in my little studio there. I'd, I'd got them oh, all over. So, uh, oh gosh, yeah. okay. So you all kind of came back, the band came back together again. And then, I mean, this is such a fascinating story, but I just want to kind of weave in the food. What was the food like in Canada? Well, I, I don't know. I, I You may or may not know. I, I also um, became very depressed when I was in Canada. I didn't really realise what, what it was, but I think it was probably, I was torn between having to live in this place where it felt like Narnia. I mean, it was winter Literally. all the time. Yeah. And and so cold that in the morning you would have the equivalent of the BBC, which is the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company, would would issue the the time it would take for for exposed skin to freeze. And sometimes what? it would be 10 seconds. I'm not joking. It would give you that. And so you start your day by hearing that, exposed skin is going to freeze in 10 seconds so everybody walks around like a like a yeti you know they you can't even tell yeah. who people are and at the same time i was really i knew that i was making great strives and and, and contributing if you like um with my skills for this business that i was the, the jeweler for and so out of that i i um gave up eating <laughs> which is <laughs> which is probably not the and this perfect. is why he's on the yeah, crazy sexy food podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, plot twist. Yeah. Do you feel like the the eating disorder came from the depression and the fact that you get, I guess, as you said, were you felt homesick and you were split between, I guess, sort of honing your craft over there or possibly coming back to London and yeah, you know, being I back mean, home. Yeah, I mean, I I think I I was. Like a lot of things, I, I was right at the forefront of kind of male anorexia um, because it was something that you definitely, you know, nobody was comfortable with it, with the, the guy that doesn't eat, you know. And I, and I lived in a place where steaks were the size of, you know, certainly big, bigger than your head, you know. And, yeah. um, and that was it. That was a, a Canadian diet was like meat and meat. And more meat, you know, and and it, and if you if you're um if you got to a point where you know to to sit in front of food would sort of almost give me a panic attack, uh, you're you're in the wrong place. But and so I I, I sort of um, started to get therapy. Um, I didn't really know what my problem was. I knew I was really sad and down and and you know just not myself anymore. And once you start on that spiral, it's very difficult to sort of pin, you know, especially especially without proper help and there wasn't the proper help and so you know to 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 think that there was going to be someone who could help me with my eating disorder you know let alone being depressed you know so so the guy who would come um every i think there was this doctor psychiatrist doctor therapist that would come to Banff once every three weeks and it didn't matter what your problem was you you you, you sort of went to see him and and he, he just gave me antidepressant tablets which made my eyeballs shake so they were really rubbish for me making jewelry Jesus. so i i i would sort of just stop taking them and then of course then you get even worse because you, you keep spiraling down so it was a it was a terrible time did you realize at the time you had an eating disorder were you very aware of what was going on yeah yeah i mean i i think after sort of I, these things, because I've I've had I've had to deal with this with my eldest daughter as well. There's a point that that feels like you go from normal to skeletal or to 
you know, everything changes. That's very, very fast. And, and you, you don't really know what, what it is. You just feel like you're, you're just down and, and you, you know, you, yeah, you're homesick. you everything feels quite dark. And part of that was that I, I'd lost interest in eating. So rather than it being, oh, this is like, now you've got an eating disorder. It kind of manifested itself that way. And then, then of course you realize you have, and then, then that becomes the focus. So, I mean, I only really found out these things later when I got better therapy. And, and I think, you know, because I've had quite a lot of therapy about it, I was able to sort of say, that's exactly what made me, you know, end up with an eating disorder. It was about control. I felt out of control because I, I loved my job. I didn't want to leave. I was in a place I didn't want to live. Oh, God. And so what can you control yourself? And that's a classic of example of how someone might, you know, give up uh, eating food or develop a different kind of food phobia. So, um, yeah. At, at its pinnacle, what, what were you weighing? Oh, oh God's sakes, I look terrible i mean i remember my mum seeing a photograph and she just started crying i mean i was like a skeleton it was terrible honestly and i i think about it and you think how well you can see how people can be hospitalized i mean i i think about what i used to eat which was almost nothing and and i think i don't even now i managed to sustain myself even in this sort of state without kind of collapsing because exactly the same time which often happens you develop other I started to be uh, I was always a good runner but it starts to become obsessive running you know and and when I couldn't run because it was so cold I would go on these massive 25 kilometer cross-country ski trails on my own so you you, all this stuff's going on at the same time I mean I left with my eating disorder because it took some time I was just gonna I just wanted to sort of conclude that (laughs) you you came back to London and that's where you kind of sorted yourself out well it took a long took me 10 years actually but but I think but the thing was once you sort of have identified what the root cause is you you know you slowly start to um, you know, change everything about your life. And, and I think what happens first is your mood changes and, and then, then you deal with everything else, but you're in a better frame of mind. You know, Absolutely. you can't deal with anything when you're in a dark, dark place, but, but then that, that slowly starts to, you know, help with everything. Thank you for talking about that. Okay. Um, very very <laughs> eye-opening. Um, bringing it back to the jewellery, you obviously come back to Canada. Um, we don't go back to Canada, that's for sure. <laughs> you came back to London. Um, and what was the time frame between coming back from Canada and then setting up Stephen Webster Jewellery? Well, bizarrely, I um, I left, you know, just went and that, that, like I've said, and then, you know, start to sort of try to resettle back in what I thought was my city. But, but I think, you know, no matter what happens when, when you've been away, I was away for like three and a half years, you know, things change and, and you, you know, you're trying to work out where you belong. And that, that wasn't very obvious for me. Um, I wasn't going to go back to doing the things I'd been as a jeweler before I left, because I, the one good thing that came out of Canada was that I'd, I'd now become a designer. I had a style. It was quite big and colorful and bold because that was the style I'd, I'd developed um, for my clientele and who were quite international. So you come back to England where that wasn't really anything to do with, with what was going on in London jewellery. I mean, and then guy that I'd worked for, this Canadian guy, he said, I'm going to sell the business. Um, I'm, I'm going to set up in California, in Santa Barbara, California. I had actually been to Santa Barbara before. I knew that it was warmer than Canada. And um, 
and it so just... it's a bit better than Banff. Yeah, no offense and... to anyone who lives in Banff, but you know. Yeah. Well, there's not that many of them, so you know you're probably highly unlikely to offend anybody. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, so I basically just did. I'd been back in London by that time for about eight or nine months. I was married by then, by the way. So I just said to my wife, you know, look, yeah, I don't know, you know, it's not like we've got anything here. We just happened to come from here, and we had to get out of Canada because she she'd lived through everything with me, which was. Um, admirable that she stayed but anyway so we went we we set up um, shop home everything in Santa Barbara so I moved there from you know now we're talking about sort of 84 I think I moved to Santa Barbara and I left in 89 so I really sort of started the process of my style if you like of becoming the designer jeweler in Canada and then by the time I moved to Santa Barbara I was able to really go for it. You know, it felt like whatever I was doing, there was an enthusiasm for because, you know, you kind of need that sort of narcissistic crowd that you find in a place like Santa Barbara, California, to really get their teeth into jewellery. You know, it, it's part of their life. I met Elizabeth Taylor. She she bought uh, some of my jewellery there. Oh, my yeah. gosh. What did she buy? Well, she my, my speciality was cocktail ring because by then I was... I was certainly Which back. is still one of your specialities. Yeah, I, I, was, I was back to my my sort of normal healthy self in a lot of ways. And and I so I was approaching my jewellery in the way that I just wanted to. And I always felt like, you know, the ultimate piece of jewellery, if you like, that comes with no baggage, you know, no husband, no nothing, is a cocktail ring. <laughs> and um, you only wear it to have cocktails. It's perfect. So I was making a lot of cocktail rings and she bought one of my cocktail rings. I mean, the unique thing about it was that it had a lavender-coloured stone, a chalcedony, which, which you know, she had these famously lavender-coloured eyes, which is why she bought it in the first place. But everything about it, I'd made. So I made it, I designed it, I'd set the stones in it, uh, you know, which is which was probably at the time quite unusual. And I guess, I mean, you're really known for these incredibly beautiful, mesmerising pieces and you use these precious stones that are so vibrant and just something that, you know, I don't know if people know, but, you know, my mother, as you know, is in the jewellery world, but these stones are so incredible. And you also um, have your crystal haze um collection can you just talk to me about the stones the sourcing of them why you went down that route of these very colorful gems yeah well i mean i i really have to thank uh the this canadian guy for that because um his passion was gemstones and mineral specimens. So minerals being like basically, um, if you think about a gem crystal that's not been cut, but sort of come out of the ground in its natural form. And, and yeah. when, when they're spectacular, they are sort of sold on to collectors or museums as the specimen that, that they came out of the ground. More normally, though, you kind of use those crystals and you cut gems. So that's kind of the way it works. And I think he he really taught me a lot about about gems and and the variety you know the variety of gems it it was had i not had that experience i wouldn't be the jeweler i am today because the the craft side of it was one thing i could apply my skills to whatever you know whatever i wanted but you needed someone or or somehow to get exposure to to this sort of gems that 
first of all, they seemed like they were all big and, and they came with names that you certainly could spell. They were like, you know, Savorites, Tanzanites, you know, they were, they were all these Indicolites, everything had a funny name. Yeah. Um, but they were beautiful. And, and, and I think because they felt there was something about them that you just felt you didn't have to feel so restricted by the way that you used them. And I think that very early exposure um, was really part of me ending up with these gems that you're talking about, which, which appear to be, you know, different to other people's is because I got this exposure early and it made me want to incorporate the cut of the gem into my design. So rather than just using what was available, I, I wanted to play with it more. And, and then um, ultimately I ended up with the, the concept of Crystal Haze, which is 25 years old this year and is, is very much our signature because it was part of the design of the whole ring, you know, not just the ring and then there's a gem in the top. It sort of, it makes the entire band, would you say, of the ring? Yeah, it's an, it's, it's integral sort of... to, to the whole piece, yeah. It's, uh... I'm using really unprofessional jewellery No, no, it was right good. Now. Yeah, no, it, it, well, it was. I mean, at the time, I think, to have a gem that no one knew what it was, but it was a really bright colour that kind of curved around your finger as part yeah. of the ring was was probably, you know, not out there. So so it 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 sort of it took a while for it for it to uh, catch on because most things do when they're when they're new, but then it it sort of by the sort of mid nineties um, there was this sort of shift. What inspires you? I I, I guess I kind of look at most of my life and, and um, think how I can twist and turn it into a, into a piece of jewelry. I mean, I'm, I'm in front of a, a David Bowie uh, board here. Indeed. I mean, uh, David Bowie was very inspirational to me as, as a character and in my, you know, early years. And, and in fact, you know, I don't want to go back and talking about art school, but I think one of the reasons why I ended up in art school is I thought there, the first time I saw David Bowie was 1972. I thought, right, he doesn't work in an office. That's for sure. And so, um, I've, I've managed to turn quite a lot of my, my selfish indulgences into jewellery. Um, you know, I did a collection called Lady Stardust, which was all inspired by David Bowie. I've, you know, I've had other musical sort of themes, London's Calling, you know, which ended up being a little bit kind of steampunk, Victorian-inspired, you know, punk that was... But, but, of course, Mick Jones from The Clash is one of my my oldest and best friends. So I, I suppose it's a lot of life life experience. Before we sort of finish, I just want to bring it back towards the food. Um, you've been involved in a few restaurants over the years, uh, notably Mark Hicks with his restaurants, um, The Spotted Pig in New York. Talk to me about that. How did you even find yourself involved in these in these wonderful places, especially Spotted Pig, which is one of my favourite places? Well, I, I when I met Asia, you know, I mean, Asia was, was a foodie. I didn't know that the first day I met her, but it was obvious that she <laughs> she had a passion for food, and 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 we and I was still hanging on to some problems with food. You know, I was I was now looking healthy because I was eating, but I I couldn't let myself go around food. I was I I still had that in you. You end up with it, you know what I call like an anorexic brain. It, it, something just lingers. And and you 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 sort of indulge yourself in it a bit, you know. You're no longer going to kill yourself, but you just kind of play with it. Uh, I don't know why, but yeah. So um, so I meet this woman. She's a foodie. She cooks me a meal. I'd been a vegetarian for 14 years. 
the first thing she cooks me is like a beef bourguignon. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> this is going to be a tough one. But I didn't want to feel like a weirdo. So, um, so I didn't you didn't tell her. tell her? No, I didn't even oh tell her. Oh, my God. I certainly didn't tell her I'd had food problems. I, I just was, I didn't even tell her I was vegetarian. I, I just felt I'd eat, I've got to eat oh, that's it. You brilliant. Know? And I thought it was going to kill me. I could feel where all the bits of meat were in my body. Oh, no. Um, but anyway, that was quite good for me, I think, in the end. Not not that it's not good to be a vegetarian or a vegan or whatever it is, but I just think my, mine was a sort of slightly unhealthy reason why I had become that. Fast forward, food now becomes, I'm with Asia, food's now become much more of a pleasure. It's more a part of, of my life again properly and and um, the enjoyment of food and stuff and i could see in her how much she enjoyed uh you know making preparing eating the lot and and then mark hicks was it sort of became my friend and I, I i've known him for years but you know we probably met at the groucho or something you know drunk but he 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 stayed with us one night um in our house down in kent and he said look i'm um he'd been working for richard caring and you know the ivy caprice groups he was the the sort of the, the head chef there for many years. And he, he was going out on his own. And he said, I found a spot, but I need a partner. And I said, I'll be your partner. Um, that was that. And in the morning. Were you As still drunk when you agreed yeah, to Yeah, of course I was. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and Asia's words are exact words. You can bleep him out if you want. She said, he doesn't even like fucking food. And that was, that was <gasps> what she said. That is so brilliant. I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to let that stand in my way. So, um, <laughs> So I became his partner and, and it was an amazing thing because I was already, you know, very comfortable by, by now around food and, you know, what, what that meant. But, but I'd never really been exposed to, um, you know, someone like Mark who's so incredibly passionate about food and, and the ingredients. And this kind of goes back a bit to where we first started about my mum, you know, and locally sourcing because that's what you did. But Mark, that is part of what he is. You know, he will not import something because we don't have tomatoes in season. If they're not in season, he doesn't have them. And and that's the same with everything he's got. And, he, you know, the, the whole idea of uh, sort of foraging and and he just opened up a world to me that was a, the professional side of, of a passion for food. And I think that... Um, so I really enjoyed being his partner. I, I had no input into it, but I, I, I had a massive enthusiasm and, and understood completely where he was coming from. I, I think the things that we shared were we were both passionate about what we did. We both quite maverick. You know, no one's going to tell Mark to do this if he doesn't sit comfortably with him, you know, and it'd probably be the same for me. And, and, and we, you know, we, were, we had our name above the door. And so for seven years, you know, I was with him while the business was growing. And um, it was really nice to be on the inside and watch that happen. I think with the Spotted Pig, wasn't such a great story, actually. Oh, <laughs> it, no. It started, it started well enough. So I'm sort of, now I'm in the restaurant business. And um, funny enough, another school childhood friend of mine, Pete Tong, because he and I have known each other since we were like 14, because he's from Gravesend as well. He says he was a partner in the Spotted Pig. And he said, look, the, the, the guys who own the Spotted Pig, they, they want to open a, um, a similar thing in L.A. It's going to have the same spirit. It's got quite musically involved and they, they kind of want to put their community together. And 
and, and by then, because we're talking about not that long ago, I had my store in Beverly Hills and I was kind of, you know, I was on the scene a bit, you know, people knew Stephen Webster was and that. It, it suited them to have that type of person in the community that would help them with their, you know, move into a market that was new. So um, it was called the Hearth and Hounds and it was super cool. Really amazing. The food was amazing. Everything about it ticked all the boxes. I went a few times with Pete and with other friends and started to sort of, you know, bring people in in the early days. And then, and then it all came crashing down because um, one of the one of the partners was accused of a of a Me Too situation, of which I'm not even oh. going to comment because it never even got to the point of whether he he did or didn't. But at that moment, which was probably exactly uh, the Harvey Weinstein moment, if you had anything that had me to possibly associate with your name, and, and so everybody stopped going. And the, the terrible thing was the woman who was the principal partner, the chef, and everything who I loved, she put so much into this, it all just crashed and burned around her. She had to close. And it wasn't even her. So it was... Um, it wasn't quite the success story no. of uh, my second venture into the food business was uh, was not the same. Slightly, as the slightly halted, <laughs> halted and ended very abruptly. Yeah. Aside from those two places, where are some of your favourite restaurants to go to? I suppose I quite like something that feels very intimate. There's a place called the Kiln, and if you know on on. Um, on, yeah, in, in Soho. Soho, yeah. And is then, it on Brewer Street or something? Yeah, it's on Brewer Street, yeah. And that, yeah. That, I love that place, and that's very sort of Asian, but it's everything's done in this in these little uh, clay kilns, and I suppose that that I like a lot. It's, and then um, the uh, Duck Soup, which is um, another restaurant where, you know what, they, I think most of these are, they suit me to feel that... Um, that you, they're any occasion food, and and I'm not really so fond of pursuing like a Michelin star or this or this. That that I can go and I know that I'm going to get good food, but they wouldn't be my my choice. You know, I mean, yeah. I used to live in um, in New Quebec Street in um, in uh, Marlborough, and and down the road was a Pakistani restaurant that I still go to and I still take people to because Pakistani food. You know, it's a bit different to Indian food and you kind of go there for that person. I know everybody in there and, and they know Asya and I. And I, I think there's something about those places that maybe they, they'll end up being my choices. But it's not so much about specific um, type of food. I probably open to pretty much anything. I mean, you know, Russian food, you know, English food. I mean, I, through Mark, I've become a bit of an ambassador for what English food can be, you know, because there's lots of, mm. lots of sort of, oh, you know, what's that then? Roast beef, you go where well, it could be, you know, but then, you know, it's yeah. like. You live a life of no regrets. And I'm saying that in inverted commas, you even got it tattooed on you somewhere on your body. What does that mean? And should we all live by this? <laughs> Uh, well, I I would say yes. I I mean, I'd hate to think that you kind of go through life regretting this and this and this, even if some things don't go according to plan, like my Canadian. <laughs> but but you know, out of it, I I um I also became you know, like I say, the jeweler that I am was because of that. So so I I think it to, to be honest, it, you know, there's a bit of tongue in cheek about it. Of course, there is. You can't 
you know, just go through life and causing atrocities and not regret them. But generally we don't do that. You know, I, I think it's, it, it's much more associated with me about an enjoyment of life and, um, and the suggestion that, um, that, you know, that the next morning you don't regret it, you know? And, and I, I, so I think it's a more of a lighthearted way of looking at things, but what, what it's done for me is it's given me something that I can, I feel that my work, my jewelry work, you know, my, my creative work needs to tick a box to get into uh, the no regrets space. And, and that's really helped me. I think a few years ago, um, like probably most creative people, I felt a bit lost. I felt a bit, I didn't really know where my strengths were because, mm. you know, I think, oh yeah, I had them then. And then now, you know, maybe things have moved and, and I've got to be like this or, or maybe I've got to be like that. Once you start doing that, you start to get really baggy and, and, and people lose the reason why they might come to Stephen Webster or, or, or you know, any sort of niche designer. And I, and I think there the no regrets. I, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I had no regrets above my store in Beverly Hills. I mean, I, I did a show with your dad uh, with his yes, photograph. Yes, he did. And... Uh, and in the No Regrets Lounge. And I, I think that, so even though it was there, it hadn't occurred to me that this is a space that, that needs to help define what belongs in that place. And that that then means that if it, if I look at it and go, uh, you know what, doesn't belong in the No Regrets Lounge, it's because I shouldn't be doing it. I, I've always maintained the uh, the philosophy that you can make mistakes, but regrets prevent you from moving forward. Right. Okay. Well, that's good. You should probably you get know, that we, tattooed. We, we, yeah. Well, yourself. it's a little bit longer. It's going to be like a whole essay down my arm. Yeah. Stephen, I always finish my interviews with a few quick fire questions, and the first one is right up your street. So I don't need to tell you that my favourite snack of all time is a packet of crisps, and I probably know the answer to this as well. What is your favourite flavour of crisps and why? Well, you, you know damn well, it's a Monster Munch pickled onion flavour. It's the, it is uh, the most unsocial snack. It's, it's, the, it's the snack of the moment because it was built for social distancing. You, know, you should there always, we go. You should always be six feet from a person who's eating a packet of Monster Munch. <laughs> <laughs> um, what ha what happened at Christmas? All of your staff bought you a bin liner full of pickled onion monster munch. You sent me a uh, photo of it. Yeah, no, it was my birthday. I your think birthday. They, they kind of put it down that you know, for the man who's got it all, it was a packet of monster munch for every week of the year. So it's like oh, fifty two packets. I got through them, but I'm slightly yeah. But you know what though? I think someone was helping themselves because <gasps> I I know the bag was getting emptier. But I'm like, I don't think I'm eating as many as I should. This bag's... That is... Yeah, someone's sneaking mm. into my office and just helping themselves because <laughs> I think secretly everybody loves Monster Munch. Well, you know, no, I've had a few guests who are really quite disappointed that that's my favourite flavour, but at least we can... At least I found someone who is on the same level as me. How did we... We got onto this. No, I know. What a bizarre okay. thing to know about each other. The way we got onto this is we were bonding over the best coffee in London, right? That's right. And I Flat think white. you made a comment that, that 
Yeah, exactly. And then we were talking about how we also quite like sort of it sort of followed or or it was behind a packet of crisps as your snack. And I was like, I can't believe that you, Stephen, love pickled onion Monster Munch because I love pickled onion Monster Munch and I don't know anybody else out there who does. What is the craziest food you've ever eaten? I've eaten insects. Yeah, I've eaten quite a few insects. When I, I was in Japan, the first time I had some grasshoppers and then I was with my my family in a, a night market in Bangkok, and there they have a bit like a pick and mix of bugs. So there's, oh my like, God. there's like, you know, you kind of get your bag and you can help yourself to some ants. And well, some, you just weigh it and yeah, then pay and, by the gram or so, something. So, you know, kids being kids, I mean, they're hardly kids, but they were like, go on, Dad, go, go, you know. So, so I, What was I, it I, like? They're, they're, they're weird. They've got a sort of a, it's difficult to say what protein tastes like, but they've got sort of a, something that's a bit nutty they're crunchy because they're deep fried they're all deep fried so the legs and wings yeah. are all gone so you've just got like a this sort of fried thing that looks a bit nut so they're yeah. not disgusting what's been your most memorable meal as a spectacle i'm going to say that i um we were we were at mark hicks's um restaurant in um, lime regis called the fish house and when he won uh, the Great British Chef or whatever that TV show is some years before. He'd won it with a stargazy pie. And a stargazy pie is a traditional Cornish dish and it's got sardines uh, and they're all sticking out of the crust of a pie. So it's called stargazy oh, wow. pie. And, it, and it's quite funky and, it, and it's, a, it's a fish pie, basically. We're down there and I'd said, he said something about a birthday cake and I said, oh, it was my birthday. So I said, no, what about... Instead of a birthday cake, why don't we have a stargazy pie? So he says, okay. So the next night come in and um, um, in comes the, all the staff with this stargazy pie, but it is no longer got sardines. It's got a lobster sticking out the top of the crust with its claws oh up here. And it's holding two Roman candles and they're sparkling and it's this pie. And the whole restaurant, of course, is just like, what? That is amazing. That sounds unbelievable. A rabbit and lobster pie. And um, it was Whoa. extraordinary. And it was, but the spectacle of it was was amazing. But it tasted delicious and, and not an thing to kind of put together. Finally, live to eat or eat to live? I, I'm, I'm going to have to go into eat to live because as much as I've infused about food and I so love that my family are possibly the other way around. <laughs> I think when when I am literally left to my own devices, I go right back to uh, to eat to live. You know, it's kind of, it's just what I am. I'm, I'm not one of those people that pursues a taste. If, it, if it's put in front of me or, or I'm going to go for it, but uh, yeah, so that way around. Unless it's Monster March, then it's a completely different yeah, thing. Yeah, well, they, they eat to die, <laughs> I should imagine that one. Yeah, there, there we go. <laughs> well, especially with 52 bags in your in your room. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. It has been really eye-opening uh, hearing about your life. And thank you very much for sort of opening up about, you know, certain parts. You can follow Stephen on social media at Stephen Webster Jewellery. Okay. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you for listening and joining me this week. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend and another and maybe another. Don't forget to follow all the crazy sexy antics on Instagram 
at Crazy Sexy Food. And please visit the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel where you will find the food show, how-to videos, interviews, and everything in between. Until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.